I discovered that I had what's called a unicorn uterus. I have half a uterus and only one fallopian tube. And that that really lowered my chances of not only getting pregnant, but carrying a baby to term. I went on an IVF journey, which basically kind of took me two years and did multiple retrievals and multiple rounds, and none of them worked. It was after, I think, at some point, I can't remember if it was my third round, but after things, you know, continued to not work, that my doctor said, you know, I think you might want to think about surrogacy again. We really don't know very little about unicornia uteruses, but a lot of women just fail to get pregnant, and you unfortunately might be one of them. Two years into the journey, looking into surrogacy, we met this incredible woman. Her name is Trisha, mom to two girls. And actually, thanks to her, we ended up having our twins. But around the same time, as these stories would have it, I also got pregnant through trying one more round. I, you know, had miscarried so many times that I wasn't really counting on that happening, that that also happened to stick. And we ended up having three babies back to back within six weeks. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Our guest today is Sarah Miyazawa LaFleur. She is the founder and CEO of the clothing company M.M. LaFleur. Before founding her company, Sarah worked in the luxury goods group of Starwood Capital in New York and Paris. Before that, she was a management consultant at Bain & Co. and TechnoServe. She graduated from Harvard, and she sits on the junior board of the International Rescue Committee. As founder and CEO, Sarah got her start as a management consultant, but she was really frustrated by the lack of women's workwear options that were stylish and practical and also washable and usable. She teamed up with Miyako Nakamura, who was the former head designer of Zach Posen, and Nari Foster, and they launched M.M. Lafleur in 2013. Their aim with women's workwear is to make clothing that is functional, that is comfortable, and that is stylish. We talk about what it's been like to grow this company over the last 10 years since they launched in 2013, and also what it was like to add triplings. That's triplets, but not quite. It's a set of twins plus a sibling, all within six weeks to her family, and how that affected her as a CEO, as a worker, and what her journey to motherhood was like. Sarah shares an inside look into her fertility journey and when she realized that it was going to be more challenging for her to have kids. They ended up looking into surrogacy, and when the surrogate got pregnant with twins, she later found out that she too was pregnant. So she delivered within six weeks of her surrogate, and she had three babies in her house all at once. What I appreciate so much about this conversation, too, is to talk honestly about how motherhood can really change the way you show up at work. When you add a baby to your family, let alone three babies, things do change. And this whole concept of bouncing back or being the person you used to be is such a silly phrase because things, of course, change when you add a baby to your life. So she shares what's changed. We talk about how it's harder to remember things, what it's like inside of our brains, and how we manage and function as CEOs given the fact that we now have children. 
One of the hardest things about being a CEO or being a manager or a leader is finding and carving out space to think. That is one of the reasons why I made the Wise Women's Council. Twice a month, we bring wise, vetted experts in to support you in your leadership development. Our core business trainings help CEOs and leaders make complex decisions more easily, learn how to say no, learn how to ask for help, and build a life and a business based on whole person leadership principles. Our leadership sessions support you in deepening your own internal wisdom, building at your personal growth edges, and improving your stamina and energy reserves. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now, and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com slash WWC. I'm so excited to have Sarah LaFleur joining us today. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I have hours of questions for you, but we are both parents of multiple children and it's late in the afternoon. So we're going to dig right in. You run an amazing business. Tell us about your career journey and your entrepreneurship journey. Have you always known that you were going to be an entrepreneur? What did that look like? No idea. I remember in my first real job out of school, I was working at a management consulting firm and we had a partner come in and say, which of you in here thinks that he or she is an entrepreneur, raise your hand. And one person raised his hand and the partner looked at me and he was like, Sarah, how about you? What do you think? And I was like, I don't know. I've never thought about it. And he was like, well, if you've never thought about it, you're probably not going to be an entrepreneur because if you're an entrepreneur, you just know deep down that you're meant to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not an entrepreneur. And that story really sticks with me because, you know, lo and behold, here I am. And my mom actually is an entrepreneur. And so I guess you could say in some ways, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. But I think because I got to see my mom run her business up close and personal, it seemed terrifying to me. You know, I think I knew how hard it was. I knew how stressful it was. And I would often see her, you know, if I would come down in the middle of the night for a glass of water, I would see her in the dark, sipping her whiskey. I think from that, I was like, yeah, this is not for me. Still kind of surprises me that I ended up doing it. But um, it's another thing my mom says. It's like being an entrepreneur is like taking off your stockings. Once you take them off, you can't put them back on. <laughs> so I do think that that is also wrong true. And now I can't imagine anything else. Well, that's really funny. I can't believe that professor said that to you. It's so wild to me how... I don't have an answer to whether or not being an entrepreneur is kind of ingrained or not, but it certainly is influenced by the outside. Like people say, oh, no, you're not. And it's like, oh, well, I trust you and you're teaching me. And yet look at you here. I wish you could go back and tell that teacher, like, actually, guess what? Turns out I run a really successful company. You know, it's so true. And I do think if I can just like get on my soapbox for a moment, it's a pretty masculine vision of what an entrepreneur is, which is you throw yourself in 150% and you live with all of your teammates and you don't even shower because you're working on this so hard. And like, 
yes, maybe that was like Mark Zuckerberg's version of being an entrepreneur. And, you know, kudos to him. He's been massively successful. But that's actually not what it looks like for a lot of people. And I will say a lot of parents and a lot of women who have other responsibilities outside the job that they do every day. And I do remember we had this opportunity to work with um, Amy Sherald, who's famous for having done Michelle Obama's portrait. And she is this exceptional artist who's had tremendous success. But she also shared with me how she actually moved home to take care of her ailing family member for almost a decade. And I was like, you know, that's so interesting because like when people think successful artists, they think Picasso and that's all you do. You don't even take care of your family. You don't, you leave your kids that you have with multiple women all in the pursuit of art. I'm hopeful that we're seeing new versions of entrepreneurship. Yes. I love this soapbox. You can join me on this podcast anytime to be on this soapbox. <laughs> it strikes me, it's so odd for several reasons. Like number one, if you're asking someone, would you like to be a successful entrepreneur and work 100 hours a week or 40 hours a week? Like it's a no brainer to me. To me, I'm like, dude, one of them's way more efficient. I'd love to work 40 hours a week and be a successful entrepreneur. Why don't we do it the easier way? The other part of it is it's, it's just such a narrow vision and such a fragile vision of what it looks like to work. Because the minute you're not able to work 100 hours a week, what happens to your business? I'm on the soapbox with you. <laughs> no, no, no. I have to say, like, as someone who started this business when I had zero responsibilities, you know, I didn't have a mortgage. Like, I was dating my then boyfriend, now husband, but we were still in our 20s, both like so focused on our careers, no kids. And my grandmother was still very healthy. And I feel like I was 100% focused on my business. And then gradually other priorities in life took over and I had to, you know, spread my energy and spread my time. And I did have moments where I was like, gosh, am I even like a serious CEO if I'm not putting, you know, 14-hour days into my business, I still struggle with that sometimes. I'm like, I'm kind of like a part-time mom and a part-time CEO. Like, it just feels like the time disappears into thin air. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that. Okay. I, I have so many questions for you about parenting and entrepreneurship specifically. I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to go back. Can you tell us about the early days? You mentioned you were able to, you know, work 150%. What was the idea or the kernel? Did the first idea you have become the business you have today? And where did that idea come from? It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like, let me think about what business I want to start. I was in a job where I was absolutely miserable and I had only been there for a few months and I kind of ran out of there without a plan. And, you know, the way you feel when you're 27 and your world is very small I was just like, oh, my God, like, that's it. I've ruined my resume. No one's ever going to hire me again. I guess I'm going to have to, like, start my own company. I felt like I was kind of, like, backed into becoming an entrepreneur or a business owner. And I have always had this idea that clothing for busy working women could be better, busy professional women could be better. And having worked in management consulting and then and in finance, I always had to dress a certain way and I always struggled to find good clothes. And then when I was getting ready in the morning, I feel like I would look at my closet full of clothes and I would say, oh my God, I have absolutely nothing to wear, even though what was staring me in the face was so many pieces of clothes. I was like, you know, someone should do something about this at some point. 
I didn't really think that person should be me. But when I felt like backed into a corner, I was like, well, I've always had this idea. Like, maybe I actually want to give it a try. I have to say, I started it from a point of very, very low confidence in my kind of professional abilities. I think it was actually, it was like a pretty dark time for me when I decided to start pursuing M.M. LeFleur. Can you say more about that? What do you mean by that? There's, again, kind of this illusion that entrepreneurship, you have an idea, go for it, and it's kind of the journey is glorious. When I started it, I had left this job where, you know, I was getting paid six figures and had a fancy corporate card and flew business class. And I actually remember telling my mom I had to leave. My mom's the entrepreneur and she was like, are you sure? Are you sure about that? Because it looks pretty good. And um, when I quit and I started working on this I felt like there was a lot of head padding, like, oh, cute, Sarah, Sarah wants to start a dress company. That's adorable. Slash, like, what is she doing with her life? I was in such a place of low confidence after kind of having run out of this job, which I thought was, you know, my dream job and turned out very quickly to not be. I kind of was like, oh, my God, I'm a good for nothing. I'm not sure I have it in me to be professionally successful. I think all of those things were mixed up and tied up in my feeling that way. And honestly, that feeling continued for a good like 12 to 18 months after that until I think at some point I met my co-founders. We did our first trunk show where we started selling a line of seven dresses. We didn't actually even have inventory. We took orders and then we made to order because we didn't want to hold any inventory. But it wasn't until I started to see some marginal success there that I was like, huh, maybe I'm onto something. But, you know, those first 12 to 18 months till this day, those were the hardest days of my, probably my entire life, because every day I was kind of, you know, reckoning with that. Wow. It's so important to say out loud because the mindset challenge, and I know mindset is such a buzzword, but really the like deep internal challenge too of, I've got an idea. How does it work? How do I figure this out? Am I the right person? Am I good enough? I don't know what it was like inside your head, but I just feel such, what's the word for when you also feel it? (laughs) Not empathize, maybe. I empathize with it. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, yep, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're in the middle of the leap. You have no idea. It's not even a leap. It's like driving through fog. You're just like, I hope someone sees my fog lights. You, Sarah, you are speaking my language. If your metaphor is fog and fog lights, mine is I jump off like the end of one island and I see my islands that I want to swim to in the distance. And so I start swimming, but I pick my head up and the current's so strong that I can't even see the island that I meant to swim to. And it would be so much quicker and so much easier if I just swam back to the island that I came from. AKA for me, that meant like finding another corporate job. Yes. And so to kind of put your head down and say like, I'm not quite sure where the island is anymore, but I'm going to keep swimming. And apparently that is a line from Nemo. Nemo, yeah, which um, someone has pointed out to me. But (laughs) that is my metaphor to your fog and fog lights. Wait, Sarah, I just have to say, so I used to be an open water swimmer. Oh, are you joking? You actually know something about this. Yes. So 
I can't believe I've never thought of this before because your metaphor is perfect because I used to swim from, people will know this, but Alcatraz, the Alcatraz Island back to San Francisco. I used to do that swim. And the first third is great because you can see the island receding in the distance. You actually have a track record of your progress. You're like, oh, look, I'm making all this progress. But the middle third is so hard because you don't know if you're going in the right direction. You can't see over the waves in front of you. If the tide starts to get, you might be pushed totally aside and nothing is changing in the horizon. You're like, I just keep swimming and nothing is changing. And it's not until you get like much, much closer to land that you're finally like, oh, hey, that building is getting bigger. I'm actually moving. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm like, <laughs> same. <laughs> nerding out here. But tell me, as an open water swimmer, when you're in that middle third, what do you do? Like, if you do swim in the wrong direction, God yeah. forbid, what is the advice? I am really actually afraid of saying it on the air, but I can tell you what I do. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear it. I think I want to hear it. Okay. I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, but I can tell you the pragmatic stuff. So first of all, it's super cold. Most of the time, I just count. I'm really good at math. I love math. And a lot of times, I just count while I'm swimming. It's something I've learned. But if I start to get really scared, like there are great white sharks in the San Francisco Bay. There are giant container ships. Like I could be crushed by a rudder. If my brain starts to go in a really strange direction, I cannot believe I'm going to say this out loud. I think about sex. Because it's the only thing that distracts me enough to get me out of that mind loop. Oh, oh my gosh. There's an analogy in here somewhere. I can't believe I just admitted that. But I mean, it's true. So I don't mind admitting things that are true. That is actually what I do. I think what you're saying is like, think about the things that excite you. Totally. Or whatever has the power to take your mind in a different direction. Like whether or not you're a Burning Man person or you need to go out dancing or like whatever it is, sometimes like you're caught in the eddy of the loop. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. And like working harder isn't the thing. Like I can count my strokes. I can do all of the operations. I can do all of this stuff. But sometimes you're just like, I'm basically making the argument for Saturday night. I love it. (laughs) I love it. There's much to be learned about entrepreneurship from open water swimming. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's going to be something people tell me for a long time coming. Okay, so back to your entrepreneurship journey. (laughs) (laughs) Which turns out sex is an important part of this. Yep. It is. It actually, really, we're going to get to that. Okay. There's so many pieces of this journey that I have heard you talk about and that are so important, like how tremendously difficult it is to start a business. Fundraising, Ray, can you talk about what did you fund your company with? How did you start? from leaving your corporate job? I had about $35,000 saved up from my first basically four years of working in corporate America. And I emptied it all, which sounds, I'm like, I'm kind of like, wow, I would never do that today. But I was like, I'm just going to put it 100% into my business account. And so that is what I did. And then my parents were very generous and lent me $35,000 as well. So I started with $70,000. And that $70,000 actually took me through the first year of trying to get this business started. And so just to be clear, I was not paying myself. I was tutoring. I was doing the SATs. I was tutoring like fifth grade math, which I loved. And funnily enough, you can make a lot of money tutoring in New York. So I almost made as much money 
as I did being a second year analyst, just tutoring three to four hours a day. And then with that $70,000, I spent $10,000, which is the best $10,000 I've ever spent to hire my then freelance designer who became my co-founder, Miyako Nakamura. She is the chief creative officer now at MM LaFleur, and we've been running this together for 12 years. I paid $2,000 to that wonderful headhunter who actually found me, Miyako, because I didn't know a single designer. And this amazing headhunter really ended up helping me out. I think I spent $10,000 to build the website. I think I spent another $10,000 to do the logo and the branding, which in retrospect was a little bit of a waste because that name didn't even stick. And then I think I saved the other $40,000 for inventory. It was a super lean, tight startup. And it wasn't until, gosh, 18 months in, I think basically after we did that first trunk show that I was talking about earlier, where we had some proof of concept, as we call it in Startup Land, where you're like, okay, I think my product has legs, that we went out and raised a small round of what we call friends and family. And I think that round was $400,000. And you know, I think it took me seven months to raise $400,000. It was so painful. It was so trying. It was kind of piecing together many, many $20,000 checks. And it really wasn't until 2016, so five years after I started the business, that we had enough traction and actually got outside interest in doing a Series A round, so an institutional round from a venture capital firm. But at that point, I just thought I'm going to have to not entirely self-fund it, but it's not going to be a institutionally funded operation because really nobody wanted to touch fashion or clothing with a 10-foot pole. Fundraising, I think there are many aspects of my job that are trying. I think I would put fundraising as probably top of that list or very close to the top of that list. Thankfully, I have not had to do a ton of it more recently, but it still kind of gives me nightmares when I think about it. Is it because you have to spend so much time with each person? What is the painful part of it? Can you be specific? I think the painful part of it is you're walking into a room of people who have kind of seen it all before. And it feels, at least it felt to me, like, I mean, that is what pitching is. It is really having to convince them and getting them to see your point of view. And I think I'm actually a pretty compelling fundraiser. I think I can, you know, say that after 12 years of doing this. But to me, I find it incredibly exhausting to have to kind of convince people that there is this market size, that there is this customer, that there is this product that really solves a problem. And I think I found it especially tiring because a lot of people who were sitting on the opposite side of the table didn't relate to the problem. You know, I, to state the obvious, I was selling a product that served busy working professional women, and most venture capitalists are not that. They are men. They would say, well, let me ask my wife about that. Let me ask my Oof. girlfriend about it. Let me talk to my sister about it. I think this doesn't happen as much as it used to, 
But back when I was fundraising in, you know, for the first time in 2013, 2014, a lot of that kind of education had not happened. I think in some cases it still hasn't happened, but it really back then it had not happened at all. It was just painful. It was trying to get these people to understand a problem that they couldn't relate to. It was really like pulling teeth. (laughs) And it wasn't until the numbers spoke for themselves and, you know, all these venture capitalists, they track your revenue numbers through a bunch of third-party data. And so they know roughly what your business is doing. And it wasn't until our revenue was kind of growing rapidly that we got outside interest. Maybe I'm not that good (laughs) a fundraiser because I think when I was just trying to convince them on a vision, I couldn't do it really, the numbers have to speak for themselves for people to get interested. There's so many things that I'm hearing here. Like, I just want to pull out some of these things, these themes. The first one in this story that you're telling, number one, is that like $80,000 or $100,000 can go a really long way. I've heard that from so many founders. And your starting capital of 75 or 72K, that chunk of money, and then all the hustling you did with... (laughs) the tutoring in New York City. And I know it feels like you're just scraping things together, but you were able to build the prototype. And there's people out there who are bootstrapping that are just realizing, wait a second, I could take out a loan or I could get 100K and then I could hire three people and this could be revolutionary. So I heard that as one theme that I just wanted to underscore. And Sarah, if I can just piggyback on that. Yeah. The number one advice I give to entrepreneurs who are not, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg, let me like go live in a dorm with three other people and eat ramen every day. Like if you have other responsibilities, I always say like get a side hustle, get a job and that just pays the bills. And like it could be anything. My husband thought he wanted to be a novelist and so he was dog running for a while. (laughs) Yeah. You know, dog running, dog walking. It could be working at Starbucks. It could be tutoring. It could be a hundred things. But I think what I see a lot of people do is they say, okay, I'm going to save up $100,000 in my current job. And then after I save that amount, then I'm going to quit and like pour my everything into that startup. And I always say like starting a startup takes a lot of time and you don't want to be against this clock that you see ticking. You don't want to see your savings account just dwindling in one direction wondering and panicking whether your idea is going to come together in time before your money runs out. A hundred percent. So I think just having that source of revenue, whatever that might be, gives you a little bit of breathing room to keep going because these things take a lot of time. If I could put in the audience standing ovation sound right here, that's what I put in. Yes, (laughs) right? Like, There's no limit to, I mean, there is time and energy and small children, but getting those side hustles can be really, really helpful and they can be life-changing. And I also just want to say how much I appreciate that you shared that it took five years to get to the fundraising, to get to the family and friends round. I think you said five years. It took a number of years. Yeah, Series A was five years later. And friends and family, again, like we could talk all day long about what friends and family really means. But like friends and family to me meant like a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, like yeah. yes. first big time investor was my then boyfriend, now husband's elementary school friend's father's former business partner. It's right. so roundabout. It's not like if you've got three rich uncles, you're set. It takes a long time. Yes. And the thing you said about how hard fundraising is, 
this is the epitome of sales and a lot of people just don't want to do it, right? It's like, oh, can I get someone else to do the sales? Or when can I get the sales to be automated and to be running on a cycle? And what I'm hearing you say about how painful it is, sometimes you're going through a thousand conversations where you're trying to convince each person that women's clothing is a thing and we would like them to be comfortable and have pockets, right? And then you hear a thousand people say, yeah. I don't think people are interested in that. And you're like, I'm going to bang my head against a wall. <laughs> exactly right. My mom, all her wisdom, the other thing she also said, it was like in the startup days, because you're going to get so many no's, you should try to surround yourself with a bunch of yes people. Mm. And right, we're just like kind of counterintuitive to every piece of advice I think most people have gotten. But she was like, don't worry. Enough people will tell you no. In the beginning, it's really important to have yes people who actually believe what you're trying to do. And I think that is also an, a piece of advice that very early stage entrepreneurs can use. That's so great. That is so great. I need to hear that. Justine, who is um, helping me in all things Startup Parent, is that yes person for me. She's always like, you have no idea how good this is. That yeah, is such a good it. piece of advice. So two things before I pivot to talking about your parenting journey. Number one I would like to hear more of the advice that you have for people starting early entrepreneurship. I think the first one is that it helps if you're the customer and you can be really specific about it. And just because of the industry I'm in, I tend to meet with a lot of fashion entrepreneurs, people who are trying to start a fashion business. And sometimes I'm meeting with designers, but often I'm also meeting with business people. And I would say, well, who do you think this product is for? And they were like, well, you know, it's like, for women 20 to 50 living in cities. And I'm like, <laughs> and they have hair. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. It's a really tough proposition when you can't see who your customer is. Like, exactly, exactly. And I think MM LaFleur, my company, has expanded our definition of who we call her Samantha, our customer we call. Samantha, but who Samantha is. But in the very beginning, we were laser clear about who that woman is. You know, we said she's a 34-year-old lawyer living in Manhattan, and this is what she reads, and this is the credit card she uses, and these are the brands that she shops, and these are the places that she goes to. And like, I think that level of specificity is so, so important in the early days. And to be able to articulate that I think we'll just give you a lot of confidence that your customer is out there. So that's probably the other other advice, aside from getting your side hustle and to keep swimming because it takes time <laughs> and to give yourself, I say like minimum two years. Like I'm like, don't even think about starting a company unless you're going to give yourself two years to really properly do it. That's the advice I give. Oh, so good. I could ask you so many pieces of advice. The other thing, for people who don't know your company, Tell us about what it is that you do. Give us the spiel or the overview just so people listening, because they all probably need what you have. We are a clothing line for busy, working women. And I would say, really in the pre-COVID days, we focused so much on professional attire. We did a lot of suiting and dresses. I remember we went into pants we said death to the pantsuit. This was back when we launched in 2011. And then sure enough, in 2015, we launched pantsuit. Our line has expanded quite a bit since then. But 
we really focus on ease of care and machine washability, wrinkle resistance, and all the clothing that we make. Of course, if it were just that, then you know you could go to any athletic store and get that. But I think what we're really focused on is the style element as well. My partner, Miyako Nakamura, she was the former head designer at Zach Posen when we met, and she had also worked with Jason Wu. And so she came from this incredible design background and has, to this day, like I think she is the most talented designer I've ever met. And she really brings in her high-end design sensibilities. And I think mixing that with the practical elements, like one of our best-selling products is called the Foster Pant. And I told Miyako I wanted a pant that I could lengthen if I'm wearing heels and then I could hem if I was wearing flats and walking on the subway platform. And she was like, huh, I wonder how we could do that. And so we ended up putting snaps in the pants and you can change the length of the pants depending on, you know, whether you're wearing heels or flats or what have you. But I think it's like little ingenuities like that that really make our product. Post-pandemic, I've really focused on a new way of dressing. I think right now, like hybrid is just the way we live. And so, and part of that is, it's also, I'm a mom now. And so I think the machine washability element is especially important. And so we're focusing a lot on, okay, what are clothes that you can wear in the morning if you're taking your kids to school, but then, you know, continue to wear if you have to meet someone for a meeting or if you have to go into the office, um, really focusing on that versatility. That's M.M. LaFleur. And I think at the end of the day, we want to be championing the busy woman who needs us. Yeah. I remember when I came across the company because I'm in New York and I've been down to your studio and the comfort piece of like feeling good in your clothes is not something like I think previously feeling good in your clothes was about feeling good about how you look but not actually feeling like the texture and the softness and the drape and the, like just the stability and all of those different pieces and when I hear you talk about how hard it was to pitch, you know, male investors on this, this is a different thing. This is a whole different category. And there's millions of women out there, probably more that need this. Okay. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Thank you, Sarah. I think you articulated even better than I could. I think like feeling good, you're totally right. We had an interview with Gretchen Rubin the other day, who's doing a lot of research on five senses and talking about that in her new book. She was saying touch is kind of the neglected sense. And clothing is the thing that is touching you all day long. And it really makes a difference in the way you feel that day. Are things kind of hugging you in the right places? Does it feel comforting? Or is it like suffocating you when you have to kind of unzip your pants at the end of the day? Like that's the last thing you want. So our team is so focused on that. And literally each product we're fitting on multiple models multiple times. And really with the foremost notion that like it has to feel good when you're wearing it all day long. All of those pieces, like there's such an attention to detail. That's so interesting about the five senses. Ooh, I'm so curious about that. But I want to ask you about your parenting journey. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have read some of your story. I think this is such a wildly cool story. And I'm curious too to know what it felt like to live through. So First, I want to ask you, before, like in the preconception phase, one of the things I'd like to ask people is, have you always known that you wanted to be a parent? Is that something that had been on your radar for a long time? Or is that something that was 
kind of spontaneous or arose at some point in your life? You know, I think some people will be like, I always knew that I wanted to have kids. And I would say I think I always liked kids, but I didn't really equate that with like that. Therefore, I'm going to be a mother one day. My husband and I, we met in college and we dated for like a decade, basically. And when he proposed, I was like, what? And people were like, isn't it about time? But (laughs) I don't think in my head, like getting married and having kids was like this huge aspiration, if anything, because my mom was this very ambitious professional woman and I was so proud of her and I wanted to be just like her. I was very career focused and very career driven for really most of my 20s and my early 30s. And so it wasn't until we got married. We got married when I was like 33 and I was like, huh, maybe we should think about it. And my girlfriend actually had been trying to get pregnant and having trouble and I think started seeing a fertility doctor around the time we got married. And she was like, you know, maybe you'll have kids no problem, but you should just see a fertility specialist to get things checked out because I think I would have done things a lot differently had I known all the challenges that I was facing and never knew about. And I was like, huh. And, you know, I think the extent to my sex and reproductive health education, I went to an all-girls private school in Japan. It was like a Catholic school. And so it was basically like, do not touch a boy. You might get pregnant. And so this idea that our fertility really starts to decline in our mid to late 30s, or maybe you want to think about egg freezing if you're not thinking of having kids when you're younger. Like, none of that. And I went to see this reproductive specialist, and he kind of looked at me and laughed, and he was like, you and your husband have not even started trying. I don't even know why you're here, but if you're here, we might as well do a few tests. And actually, through that test, I discovered that I had what's called a unicorn uterus. I have half a uterus and only one fallopian tube. And that that really lowered my chances of not only getting pregnant, but carrying a baby to term. And this was something I knew absolutely nothing about and would not have known about had my girlfriend not told me to go see someone. So that was my starting point when I started thinking about kids is kind of just being bombarded with this massive realization that it wasn't going to be an easy journey for me. When did you find out about that? I think it was pretty soon after we got married. I think, again, I was about 33. And so that was, gosh, six years ago. Did that influence your parenting journey at that point? Did it change how you thought about it? Well, we actually looked immediately into surrogacy. We were recommended that we start that conversation because a lot of women with unicorn uteruses tend to miscarry or have stillbirths in their second or third trimester. And so the question that was posed to us was, do you even want to try to get pregnant? And we explored that for a little bit and said, surrogacy is so expensive and it involves bringing another person, a partner, into a very intimate part of your lives. And I think we just said, like, why don't we try on our own first? I went on an IVF journey, which basically kind of took me two years and did multiple retrievals and multiple rounds, and none of them worked. It was after, I think, at some point, I can't remember if it was my third round, but after things, you know, continued to not work, that my doctor said, you know, I think you might want to think about surrogacy again. 
we really don't know very little about unicornial uteruses, but a lot of women just fail to get pregnant. And you, unfortunately, might be one of them. Two years into the journey, looking into surrogacy, we met this incredible woman. Her name is Trisha, mom to two girls. And actually, thanks to her, we ended up having our twins. But around the same time, as these stories would have it, I also got pregnant through trying one more round. I, you know, had miscarried so many times that I wasn't really counting on that happening, but that also happened to stick. And we ended up having three babies back to back within six weeks. It was, it ultimately was, I think, a a three-year journey, but we were incredibly, I guess I should say both incredibly lucky and because there is a total kind of luck of the draw element to it. And I think we threw money at the problem. So we were very privileged and fortunate to be able to do that. And I think both points are worth bringing up and discussing because I don't think that gets talked a lot about in fertility treatments. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different pieces to it. Three babies in six weeks. So yeah, yeah, that's a lot. That's all of a sudden. And you have these three babies. So tell me, when were your twins born or how old are they now? They're two and a half. They'll be turning three in August and September. I'm both like at my knees and like could not be happier if that makes sense. I know every parent out there will relate to that. It is so fun. And I've got a built-in play group. So it's fun to see them grow up together and In the morning, I just hear the three of them kind of singing together, and there's nothing better. Do you call them triblings? I forget if that's a term (laughs) or not. Yes, we do. Um, I said it's like triplets, but they're siblings, so we call them triplings. And my husband is like, please don't make that a thing. And I was like, it's a thing. And I was like, so. It's a thing. There's a woman around the corner from me has twiblings. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Yeah. As fertility changes, right? As fertility changes too, because it is changing these decade by decade, year by year, I think we'll see more of it, right? There's so much more IVF. There's more surrogacy. For sure. And, you know, I think some people, if they work with a surrogate, they don't want to necessarily share that or make that information public. I think with us, kids are born six weeks apart. Like there's kind of no way around it. (laughs) It's like, right. It's like, how did that happen? Totally. The truth is, we needed the help of someone else. And I think this is like, it is kind of a metaphor for other things in life. But I went down this fertility rabbit hole. I mean, I kid you not, if there was a treatment available, I tried it. You know, every vitamin, every medication. And at some point, I kind of had to draw the line and saying like, I can't keep running a company and doing this other full-time job, which is IVF. I calculated that I'd spent over 200 hours at the doctor's office in one year. I kind of had to draw a line and say, like, enough is enough. I was exhausted to the bone. And my therapist said something to me that really helped put things in perspective. And she was like, don't forget, like, your mission is to become a mom. It's not to become pregnant. And I think that really helped me see that there was another way to, for me to become a mom. And I'm so eternally grateful to Trisha and Honestly, I would give her one of my organs if she ever needed it. Right. Yeah, because she has given me the biggest gift of my life. 
Oh, this is just such a beautiful story. We're going to take a quick break. If you are thinking about joining us in the Wise Women's Council, make sure you apply to join us during our spring or our fall enrollment. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. All right, let's get back into it. I want to know how your kids are today. You've got three two-and-a-half-year-olds. Tell me about what it's yeah. like to have three, like a small daycare in your house. And that, that is exactly what it is. It's a small daycare. And so it comes with both the chaos and I think some of the benefits. When one kind of has a meltdown, the other two take their cues and also have a meltdown. And that happens. I just, I just want to cry. But... They've also got their cute moments. I've got to say, there's a built-in play group there that is helpful. You know, I just noticed this. They are finally kind of moving from parallel play to, I guess, like joint play or whatever you call it, playing with each other. That would be the way to phrase it. And I saw that for the first time, actually, a couple nights ago. And I was like, wow, that's pretty magical. They were just passing the toy cars back and forth to each other. But when I saw that, I was like, oh, I don't know. It was pretty special. Two and a half, actually, it feels, I should say, a lot easier than one to two. And I say this without kind of exaggeration. I really felt like there were moments where I almost kind of just lost my mind between ages of one and two. And that was also coupled with all of us getting COVID at some point. And there was me, my husband, my three kids, and my actually my mother, who happened to be visiting from Tokyo. And we all got COVID together. And we all just had to quarantine together for two weeks. And they did not want to sit still. And they're incredibly mobile. But at the same time, it's like they have no sense for danger. And so they were just like about to throw themselves down the staircase at any given point. And so I think that particular year was just so, so crazy challenging that like now everything in comparison seems just a little bit easier. And I think having nursery school, like just having a dependable place where I can drop them off every day at 8.30, I mean, that I think has actually also been life-changing. Childcare is absolutely positively amazing and so necessary in so many ways. Wait, so I'm doing the math. You have two and a half year olds. They were born in August and September of 2020. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what was that like? Also, you're running a company. Things were shutting down in March. And the summer was so intense. Summer of 2020 was so intense. We also had the election coming up in November. And you were transitioning into parenthood, pregnant yourself, while also meeting, arriving, welcoming two littles into your family. What was that like for you personally and professionally? So the company was going through one of its hardest times. During the course of two and a half years, we did three layoffs. It was devastating for our business. I mean, if you just think about, okay, I'm a little slur. Their main customers are women who go into an office Monday through Friday. And then suddenly 
they're not going to the office at all. In fact, they're not even leaving their house. And like, if you could think of some like macro thing that happened that would destroy a business, like this would have been it. And it really almost did. And so that was scary. And in the early days, and I'm really talking about, you know, kind of spring of 2020, we closed every single one of our stores. And the big decision was, do we actually close our warehouse? And if we closed our warehouse, that meant that we wouldn't be able to fulfill anything on our website, which meant that our revenue would go to zero. And that was a huge kind of almost a moral quandary, you know, do you try to keep the warehouse open and obviously do everything you can to be safe and protect your workers? But at the same time, we didn't really know much then. And at least keep some stream of revenue coming so you can keep as many people as you can employed. Or just do we take it down to zero because the risks are too high? And so it felt like we're making really serious, like it could be life and death decisions. And at the same time, I'm pregnant and the only way I can describe it, I felt like pregnancy was almost a respite from it. Like I felt like I really had something to look forward to. I couldn't believe that I hadn't miscarried this baby yet. It looks like I was headed in the right direction. And it was like the one bright spot, I think, in kind of all of the chaos that was happening. Yeah. There's something about having... A thing beyond you that gives you boundaries and structure sometimes. Like, I feel that way about kids. Like, it's actually much easier to leave the office because you, know, you got to get to daycare. There's just parts of it where I would have worked till seven or eight. And now it's like, no, 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 515, got to be on the train, can't miss it. It's so true. I think in some ways, I'm sure it limits my abilities as a CEO. And in some ways, I think it makes me stronger because it just forces me to say like, okay, these are all the decisions that I have to make. And this is the only time I have to do that. And so what's going to happen? And quoting RBG, I'm just stealing from her, but I think she said something along the lines of essentially family was a respite from work and work was a respite from family. And I, the other was a respite from the other. And I truly feel that way. Both kind of help me do the other better, even if I can't put in as much time into each as I'd like. Oh, I feel that. So you were making tremendous decisions in the spring of 2020 and decisions, I think, in the face of incomplete information, which to me, that's one of the hardest things about leadership is you can look back and be like, oh, I would have made a different decision, but you're making decisions in uh, limited time with very limited information and the information is always changing and it affects people's lives. Like it affects it in many ways. Either way you go, it affects someone's life. So how did you pull through? What happened to M.M. Lafleur? And can I ask you, how big was the company at that time? People-wise, I think we had about 350 people. We ran our own warehouse and we had about 10 stores across the country. And so... You know, not a huge business, but a sizable one. Honestly, it felt like every day we were just trying to put one foot in front of the other. I'm almost out of like blacked it out because it was on a day-to-day basis. It, it was, I mean, I think for all of us, but it was quite traumatizing. 
every single day, it was me and my executive team, six of us, hopping on Zoom. And honestly, I think we were on Zoom for two to three hours a day, just like talking about every aspect of the business. Are you going to close the stores? Okay. Are you going to lay off people? Or are we going to put them on furlough? You know, which is uh, furlough. I think that was like such a unique phrase for that certain period of time. We don't really talk about furlough in any other context. And if so, what are the types of benefits that we want to offer? So we make sure that they have health care, God forbid, if they get COVID. The thing we always say at MM is no one's going to die from our address. Don't take yourself too seriously. At the end of the day, we're in the business of selling beautiful clothing to incredible women and what could be more fun. And yet at that particular moment, it suddenly felt like, actually, your decisions could have real life consequences. So like, don't make them lightly. That contrasted with like the fact that I was like finally pregnant and that if Trisha's pregnancy also carried on, we, we might welcome three babies. It was like the one kind of light that I was holding on to. And around the same time, the other kind of big thing that was happening is my grandmother, who was 93 at the time, who I was incredibly close to. And she lived about 30 blocks north of us. But we saw each other every week, if not twice a week. And she actually just subtly her health failed and she started dying. And I remember being seven months pregnant and I just wanted to go into the hospital and say goodbye to her. And the ER doctors, I understand why, but they just wouldn't let me in. The last thing they wanted was like a pregnant lady getting COVID in the hospital. So she died by herself. It was like that. And then, of course, everything after George Floyd's murder. I mean, the country was like such a crazy time. In some ways, like life and death was really just in such close proximity. And I really felt it. And I was so sad that she didn't get to meet my kids. She said, I'm going to hold on till I meet those kids. Fortunately, that never came to be. But that was what it was like that spring, summer of 2020. Yeah. It's to me, sometimes there are things where like your heart is expanding so much and you're like, I don't think my heart has more space. And then it does. And it hurts. Yeah. It's really big. Oh, my four-year-old is like my grandfather reincarnated. So my grandfather passed away at 99 and I see my child and I'm like, your grandpa. And, but this time we're eating because he lived through the great depression and didn't have very much to eat. And so like, and I see my child and I'm like, I think you're here to try again. So I wonder if, do you see your grandmother in parts of your three kids? Wow. First of all, I love that. Even though it feels like civilization never, never improves or never moves forward, sometimes it feels like we're making a little progress here. It's so funny when my eldest actually is like, it's uncanny how much he looks like my grandfather, my Japanese grandfather who was bald and he was a politician and people used to call him E.T. And you could say most babies look like they're <laughs> E.T. when they're born. Yes, they all look like aliens. <laughs> I love my grandfather, but I would not say he was like the most attractive man. Like all the families were like, oh my God, this is Chi-Chi. This is like your grandfather. <laughs> and I was so furious. Like I was like a week postpartum and I was like, enough. <laughs> it's not like my Sorry. grandfather. <laughs> I was so furious. Totally. You know? It's like my baby is beautiful. And literally my husband, he like created like a two by two of our baby and my grandfather's face and 
I hate to admit it, but they really did look alike. I think he's just become significantly more attractive. So <laughs> yeah. I actually think he's my grandfather reincarnated. Oh, you're going to see pieces in different. It's so fun to see. You're like, oh, that's me. I'm so sorry you got that. Sometimes I think that with my children. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Yes, we both are dealing with this, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, right. I know what that from. Totally. I threw it yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, yes. Oh, I am curious. So then you delivered in August and September. Then you delivered in August. The babies arrived in September. Is that right? Or is it reverse? I delivered in August. Twins arrived in September. Yeah. Tell me about what it was like. So you're in the middle of the pandemic. You're making extremely difficult decisions. What was it like to be leading a company at that time? Were you able to take maternity leave? What did that look like? I did. And I was able to do so purely because I had an amazing right-hand person. His name is Eric. He was my president and he became my interim CEO while I was out. And he is to this day one of the smartest people I've ever had the chance to work with. And he actually came in as our interim CFO. And it was meant to be like a three-month stint that turned into a six-month stint. And somehow I was like, never leave. And so you only really understand what it feels like to have a true, true business partner when you feel like, I'm going to pretend like the company doesn't exist and all decisions are going to start and stop with you. The buck stops with you. And I trust you to do that. Were it not for him, I would not have been able to do that. And I will say I was exhausted. Started working on the company in 2011. And so it was 2020. It's nine years in. I never really taken a break, especially after kind of everything that had happened that summer with the social unrest and the riots. And, you know, that also required us boarding up our stores our store in D.C. was two blocks from the White House. It was like in front of everything, all the protests that were happening. And after all of that, I said to Eric, I was like, I need to take, I need to take maternity leave, but actually what I need is a proper break. I always hesitate to say this because I don't want to ever give the impression that maternity leave is a break. But for me, it felt like that because it was a mental break from work. Like physically, right? We're so exhausted. We're not sleeping. Like, waking up every hour and a half to feed. And my husband managed to get four months of parental leave. And so was really a true partner with me throughout it. I ended up going back to work earlier than he did. Physically, we were exhausted. Mentally, I was on cloud nine to not have to think about this thing that I had been thinking about so hard for nine years. I like welcomed it and I needed it. And actually, my team was like, gosh, I can't believe how much you actually checked out. And I was like, yep, I totally checked out. It sounds like those things really lined up, too, because those are two separate needs. You need the need for maternity leave and the need to check out, to really stop thinking about work. And you were able to do both of those. That's amazing. Yes, that was. I still think back on that time so fondly. And again, getting on my soapbox, we at MM LaFleur offer parental leave in equal amounts to both mothers and fathers and birthing parents and non-birthing parents. 
people say like, but that doesn't actually make sense because, for example, if you have a C-section, it's harder to recover and maybe you want more time off and we should be able to offer that. And I get the argument for that. But I will say, I think as a result of my husband taking actually more time off than I did, he was just as knowledgeable about all their quirks and all the weird kind of details that accumulate in those early days. He doesn't like this nipple. She likes to be fed like this. Blah, blah, blah. Just like kind of useless knowledge, but it feels so essential because that's the only way that anyone's going to get any rest around here. And he knew that just as much, if not better than I did. And I think as a result, you know, one of the things that I was like proud about I went to drop my kids off and my nursery school teacher said, you know, when most kids cry, they cry for mommy. Your kids are the only kids who say mommy, daddy. And it gives us a good sense that that your husband's really involved. And I was like, I'm so proud. Also, the self-critical person in me is like, why aren't they saying mommy more? But the other side of that is like, wow, that's actually really amazing. And so I do feel like we cope parents together and we're co-parenting really well. That's amazing. I love that. We've got a mama, dada, dada, mama in our household. They indiscriminately just yell for the grown-up figure who will fix things. Yes. (laughs) There's some really interesting research out there that says like parenting is not an innate instinctual skill. It is you get better at parenting by doing it. The more you do it, the better you get. And this is just such evidence, this equal leave, it actually pays dividends. Even if you are the person physically recovering from a C-section or something like that, having a person there to support you that can take on some of the load benefits you. If you're in a dyad if you're in a dual partnership. If you're a single parent, we should be sending people out for you. That's what we should be doing. More on that later. I have so many more questions for you, but I want to skip forward a little bit. How did showing up at work change? You talked about being in your 20s and really like driving hard. And then you have three children. You're a parent. You're running a massive business. What changed about work? I can no longer be the hardest working person at the company. I can't believe I actually just said that out loud. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say it, but in terms of sheer hours, I just, I can't. But that's kind of the reality, I guess, that I've been dealt with. And a friend of mine, she's an amazing chef. She's like a top chef, Iron Chef, you know, winner multiple times over. She said to me, if I cut the vegetables, if I'm doing the job of a prep cook, that's the most expensive prep cook there ever was. And she was like, so I need to stop being the prep cook. And if I know that someone else could be doing this job, then I need to ask someone else to do it and not feel bad about it. I think that is a lesson. I will say I'm still learning because I think it conflicts with one of my other values, which is also one of my company values, which is nothing above you, nothing below you, like be the person who takes out the trash. And I think I pride myself on that. But then sometimes I'm like, that's bad use of my time. Yeah, I try to be the chef and I really try to make sure that what I'm doing 
is what enables other people to do their jobs. I try to not be the prep cook. Yeah, absolutely. I bet that aligns with one of your other core values, though, I would imagine. There's, there's got to be something in there. I'm just thinking about this out loud. When you do the prep cook stuff, you actually take away jobs from other people and then you stall all the rest of the prep cooks because you're not making the decisions that need to happen for people to be able to do all these various functions. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like a highest and best use kind of quality. So work changed. I actually want to tap into this idea. So for me, I just resonate with so much of what you say. I am slower. I sometimes only have four or five hours in the day to do my most best work. Days can be like today where I wake up, all of a sudden I have a head cold, right? And it's so unpredictable parenting. I've heard you say that before. Every day is chaos. And I know there's this quiet desperation in so many of us just to have a five-day work week, just to like be able to count on hours. And I'm curious, what does it look like mentally for you? How do you deal with the fallout from that, from not being able to do as much? What does that look like? I'm struggling with it. I actually love some wisdom on it. And I totally hear you. Like, I've become one of those like insane New Yorkers that people across the world make fun of that like gets up at 5.30 right now. The sun's out earlier. I'm usually up around five so I can have two hours of silence. I don't know, do whatever I need to do drink my tea, take a walk, think about things. Except my kids also think now it's hilarious to get up earlier. And so my kids were up at 5.45 the other morning and it just totally wrecked all my plans. Like I had a plan to go on a walk and call my little sister who lived in Tokyo and like they get to do any of that. I'm so pissed about it. Despite being a CEO, I'm not that much of a control freak. I get angry. I feel angry when this, these kinds of things happen. I'm still looking for answers. I wish I had wisdom to give. And if anything, I don't know, Sarah, how have you dealt with that? <laughs> well, I just thank you for sharing that because it's so relatable. And I actually think people listening, there's a quality when someone's honest, really honest about it. They're like, oh, it's not just me, right? It's actually really validating to hear we used one of those hatch baby rest lights, you know, those lights that turn colors. And so we trained our kids that they couldn't get up until the green light went on, starting around the age that your kids are, actually. And like whenever they woke up from our bedroom, we would then turn it green. And then we would add a minute, add a minute, add a minute because they couldn't read the clock. And we worked so hard to get them to stay in their rooms until 6.30. We were like, you can wake up, but you need to wait till the green light comes on. And some mornings they would wake up at 5.40 and then we would, you know, turn the green light five minutes later because they're tiny children. But boy, do I feel you. They have a sixth sense. You're like, I'm going to get up oh, early yeah. at 5.00. And they're like, me too. And you're just like, the rage, Wait. the rage inside when you're like, Leave me alone. All I ask for is 45 minutes to drink the coffee. Yeah, it's an intense experience. And I feel you. I feel just so much. It's not demoralization. It's not quite guilt. I don't know what the feeling is, but I just feel so bad because I don't want to let people down. And I take longer to answer emails and I'm behind on things. And I know people are waiting for me. And sometimes I really have that like, come on, Sarah, get your stuff together. Like, Sarah, what's going on? But the only thing I've learned to do is just ask for forgiveness. You know, I email people and I tell them, 
I email slowly. I'm often delayed. People have to remind me of things. Bless you for sticking with me. Like, thank you. That's all I can do. And it's so funny because I'm very comfortable giving other people grace. Like when other people don't respond to me, I don't think like, God, what an asshole. I'm just like, gosh, they must be so busy. Like, (laughs) I don't take it personally at all. And yet when you don't respond to an email, you're like, God, I am a terrible, horrible person. (laughs) Yeah. Like, why can't I just respond to an email? (laughs) I wish we would allow ourselves a little more, a little more leeway. So much more. Part of it is I don't have the space. Like, I can't think about you. I forget. You know, (laughs) there's no more space. It's all crammed in there. So it's like, I'm not thinking about you. What's that Mad Men quote? I don't know if you remember like John Hamm being in the elevator and someone's like, oh, I'm so worried that you were thinking about this. And he goes, I don't think about you at all. I don't think about <laughs> Yes, I don't think about you at all. How <laughs> freeing. <laughs> all right. I want to wrap this up. I think your story is amazing. I just really love that you shared so much about the parenting journey. Is there anything I haven't asked you yet that you want to tell folks who are pregnant or parenting or running big businesses? I will say, I do think it's all hard. I never want to sugarcoat that. I think a lot about my mom or my grandmother, both of my grandmothers, actually, my Japanese one and my American one. My Japanese grandmother, it was kind of unthinkable for her as it was for most Japanese women growing up 50, 60 years ago, to have a job outside the house. And then my mom, brilliant woman, I think she was, she got her MBA from Columbia. She's one of the first Japanese women to do that. And just like, she could have been so many things. And she has, you know, done so much with her career. But she always said, like, I didn't have the kind of opportunities that you did. There was no question there was no opportunity for women like me to raise money ever. And it's not like the playing field has gotten all that much better. But back to what we were talking about earlier, I do think there is small progress being made. And so I try to kind of remind myself that I am actually probably, I'm living my grandmother's dream. And I know I'm living my mom's dream. She tells me that. I do try to keep that big picture in mind. And really kind of realize how lucky I am. That's really sweet. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yes. There's so much there. Where can people find out about you online and follow you? Is there a place you'd like to hang out? Tell them about your company and what they should look for. My other baby, my very first baby is mnlafleur.com. I would love for you to check it out. We create great clothes, if I do say so myself. And if you live in New York or D.C., We've got three stores in New York. We've got one store in D.C. so far, but we've got another one coming on the way. And we've also got a store uh, in Chicago. If you don't live in any of those locations, we also offer virtual appointments, which I think is a really fun way to have a stylist choose for you what might work. So do give that a try. Mm. On the personal front, I do have an Instagram handle. I am terrible about posting, but every now and then I've got got some things I want to share. So that's at Sarah M. LaFleur. Mm. Anyway, Sarah, thank you so much. As so fun. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Thank you, everyone. I'll link her Instagram. I'll link the company. I went and I did a styling appointment. It was really fun. I'm one of those people that shops. There's like a secondhand store because when I was first starting my company, I was bootstrapping and had 
two littles and like didn't have any money whatsoever. And so like I browse that and the jacket that I got, I wear all the time, like all the time. So I'm a fan of this company for people listening. If you want Thank clothes that you. feel good. And I think, you know, what's really cool is you're at this crest of people are, we have new bodies, right? (laughs) I have completely changed, whether it's pregnancy or parenting, or for me, it's devouring chips as a stress eating habit at the late night. I have this belly that I've never had before. I have this squish on my thighs that I've never had before. And like my husband and I walk around just proudly with our new bodies, because why not? But I get to buy new clothes. So people listening, if you're in that stage, maybe you could feel good about clothing. I don't brag or talk about companies that I don't actually like, and they didn't pay me to do this. I just like to lift other women's companies that I believe in. So thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much, Sarah. I want to tell you a couple of things that people have said about the Wise Women's Council. One of our members said that business support is top notch. On one of our calls, one person said, my mind is already blown and we're only seven minutes in. Hillary said, Sarah, you are one of the best facilitators I have ever met. And Dana said, if you're somebody that regularly designs community or holds space for other people, here's a place where you don't have to because Sarah has figured it all out for you and you can just be when you're in this space. Caroline said once on a call, she said, I'm normally one of those people that's thinking all the time about how you can facilitate something better. And Caroline said, I don't have to do that when I'm with you. Michelle said it's one of the only places she doesn't have to code switch between so many different identities. She doesn't have to hide being a mom. She doesn't have to hide being a business owner. She doesn't have to explain herself over and over again to different people and have them not understand her. If you are living at the intersection of parent, mom, business owner, leader, entrepreneur, facilitator, or you are running a company, come check out the Wise Women's Council. That's a place I made for you. It's what I needed when I first became a parent, and we've been running this program for six years. Head to startupparent.com WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council and apply to join us today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run Book Club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host 
Bezos Book Club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of Book Club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club, those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members. And that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here and I will see you on the next episode.